This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. You're going to know what this phenomenon's called, and I think it's recency bias, but I find more convincing things I've heard more recently than things I heard in the past. And recently I saw a TikTok from this cocktail guy coming up who's like, hi, team, and he's sort of got an English Cockney accent and says fuck a lot. So I think he's meant to appeal to very, like, middle America, like boomers who are like, oh, my gosh. And so this account is designed to appeal to very boring people who are like, can you believe that not only am I getting some hot cocktail making content, but also they're saying fuck. Like, oh my, and inflammatory (laughs) t-shirts and stuff like this. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Give me an example of an inflammatory t-shirt. Oh, not not especially inflammatory, but like, you know, taking like a 1980s cartoon, like a He-Man and having like it's dick out, like he man's dick out to be like, can you believe it's he man's dick? And it's like, well, yeah, okay, <laughs> classic stuff. Uh, look, I made up that example, but but I mean, you know the sort of t-shirt. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And so he's like, you know, all right, all right, mates. Sorry, I, I shouldn't. Uh, I've been trying to not to not do accents for stuff anymore. So, all right, mates. Um, today I'm going to tell you about my favorite vodka. And my favourite vodka's actually gin because vodka sucks. And so ever since watching that TikTok, uh, due to recency bias, I'm like, the only good kind of vodka is gin. And now I don't like vodka anymore. So uh, not that I ever particularly liked vodka, but ever since watching that, I'm like, can you believe some idiots still drink vodka when (laughs) gin is better than vodka? And I just heard this guy say it. And so ever since then, I've had that firm, unshakable belief. Gin, all hail. I'm, I'm, I totally get that. I also believe the last thing I read or heard on the internet, even if it's something I don't know about. I wonder then, Peach, mm. because, you know, we've done this podcast. Uh, this is episode 121. There's been extra little episodes here and there. We've been doing this for a long time. But yet you still haven't really seen any horror movies. Do you have any horror opinions that you're like a hundred percent sure about, even though you don't actually watch or have seen any horror. I movies. have so so many, <laughs> <laughs> and I have them to the extent where I'm like, Ugh, of course it's a spooky child's drawing. Fucking, we get it. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I I consider myself to be uh, this 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 podcast has been the shortcut to being an insider that I desperately hoped it to be because. You know, Shag, uh, a lot of us, you know, buy exciting technology in the hope that with that technology comes competence at using it, which of course is always wrong. But with this podcast, I'm like, I've invested enough time talking about horror films that I'm basically an expert myself. Get me talking to other people about horror films because I know it all now. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Mm. we spent two episodes going over the most disturbing films of all time. And... 
one of those films was by an Australian director called Justin Kurtzel, his debut film from 2011 called Snowtown, about some horrific killings in Adelaide. And it, it was a weird inclusion, I think, at first, when you consider, mm. you know, the disturbing calibre of the other films. Yeah, you know, the, the, from, from Snowtown, being... it's just a story about something that happened. It's like, yeah, well, Snowtown, great, it and, happened. And, and, and so... I spent last night with Adele watching Justin Kurtzel's most recent film. Yeah. Uh, he teamed up with the same writer, Sean Grant, an Australian screenwriter, to do something similar. And I've got to say, I've never felt more dread watching a film uh. than, you know, in a long time than I have last night. And I'm including the film Dread <laughs> in that. <laughs> tried to make us feel dread by creating this evil guy that wants to make you face your fears by putting a well-cooked steak in a vegetarian's room. Look, curiosity is a, is a good trait, right? And so him being like, I wonder what would happen if, I'm like, yes, that is a good way to approach life. You know, go out there and learn things. But I think uh, as we established in that episode, uh, not only is the idea of uh, an exposure podcast for people who are scared of their parents getting killed by axe murderers a compelling idea for a podcast and we should get on to it next, but we also discovered that the scientific method is also pretty good. And if you're planning to do an experiment outside of the scientific method, then it's going to go off the rails pretty quickly and especially if you don't have a control to that experiment. So, Shag, I completely agree. But this one's real dread. This is Bjork's Dancer in the Dark style. Oh, We're gonna feel this is, bad. This is this is proper like make you just make your skin crawl from the opening credits uh, right to lying in bed at night thinking about it as you're trying to go to sleep. Uh, now this is a very Australian film to the point where it's it's available in Australia right now. If you're in Australia, you can watch it on stand. Weird place to watch this film, uh, but you can just watch it on stand. If you're not in Australia, it's coming out sometime this year. You'll probably see it in film festivals because the lead actor in it, who weirdly enough is an American actor, a Texan actor, Caleb Landry Jones, who puts on the most convincing Australian accent. And I just, I want to do a side by here because I've, uh, I'm doing some research into this. Apparently the Australian accent is one of the harder accents to do if you're not Australian. And one of the reasons why, and that I've realized is, Mm. is that up until like the past sort of 10, 20 years, it's been treated as a uni accent. Like there's one Australian accent, which is, you know, even listening to both of us, you know, that's not true, right? But we can instinctively hear if someone's Australian, even if they might have that like Adelaide sort of like poshy lilt. Yeah, where they don't say ear, they go ah at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Or they might, or they might be like super ochre. Or, or people you know, from Melbourne might... who say Malbourne. I've still yeah. never got over that. Why they say their E's as A's. People from Melbourne, like, get to work. But we, we can straight up tell, right? Now, mm. this guy, Caleb Landry-Jones, again, like I said, Texan actor, apparently has a very thick Texan accent, mm. worked for months on this. It is the most believable Australian accent I've heard in a long time, to the point where I was surprised to find out after the film that he was American. Probably one of the reasons that he won the Best Actor at Cannes this year. So Tatane won Best Film. Mm. He won Best Actor in this film. So if you do want to see Nitram anytime soon, and that is the name of the film, uh, it's going to be probably, you know, in a film festival near you before it's released in cinemas or on video on demand. But yeah, Peach, today we are doing... uh, 
are the 2021 Australian psychological drama thriller borderline spooko super disturbing film called Nitram. When he was a little boy, we used to play a game at the fabric shop in town. He'd go off and hide in all the big, tall rolls of fabric, and then I'd try and find him. He loved it. I loved it. But then this one day, I went to find him, and he wasn't there. everywhere. Not in the silks, not in the cottons. Ran into all the shops, strangers were stopping to help me, tears streaming down my face. What did you do? I gave up and went back to the car. But then I heard someone laughing. I looked around. Lying on the floor of the back seat, looking up at me, laughing. Laughing at my pain. Laughing like it was the funniest thing in the world. Judy Davis is the goat. And so getting her to voice over being spooked out is enough to spook me out pretty badly. Chuck a LaPaglia in there. This cast looks wild, including Caleb Landry-Jones or whatever his name is. The cast is out of control. So we've already mentioned Caleb Landry-Jones, Judy Davis, Australian acting royalty, ditto Anthony LaPaglia, Essie Davis as well, who I'll go into a bit of detail later on are your main cast every one of them is exceptional this is one of those films where it it's it's a really difficult story to tell there's questions whether you should tell this story but if you're going to tell the story you Mm -hmm. have to be utterly sensitive you have to be utterly honest and Mm -hmm. you have to treat it with the utmost respect it deserved and every single person involved in this did that. So a couple of things about this film before we go into it. First of all, like I said, Justin Kurtzel, and before, like, this is going to be heavy, so I just, before we do this, Peach, I'm just going to link you to, I'm going to link you to an image of this man. In fact, the image he has on his Wikipedia, just check the chat. Tell me this is not the sort of person you'd expect to direct films about Australian serial killers. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> literally, literally, if you're listening right now and you're near a computer or you've got your phone, just Google the Wikipedia for Justin Kurtzel. He's not like he's on a red carpet. He looks like he's having the worst day, night, week, life of his life. Like he is just... It, it looks like the suit <laughs> doesn't fit him and was um, like from one of his murder victims and he's had to just put it on straight away. <laughs> Uh, he looks terrifying and distracted. Um, his hair has that artfully messy vibe. Like he hasn't neatened up his beard. Oh god. Okay. Is he a bad so, bloke? No, no, he's not at all. Not a, a, like, and he's he's an incredibly good director. Funnily enough, though, this film has been described as haunting by many people, and kind of the same of recency bias. 
I think there's a collective bias that happens in every writer's field. It definitely happens in copywriting where mm. I sort of came up before, you know, I moved on to sort of management. You'd notice this in ads, even if you have nothing to do with advertising. How many times have you seen an ad that's like, discover the whatever? Like just starts mm. with the word discover, even though you're talking about like Vegemite or something. Yep. Or that classic sentence convention where it's like, no matter how you plan to yep. spend your afternoons, Blogsy health insurance will keep you running. You know, yeah. like those sorts of things that just get told by the same brands over and over again. Because when you're when you're a writer in these fields, you hear this all the time and it just like they just create these neural pathways that go, that's the path of least resistance to write that. And I think it's the yeah. same thing. Because there's now this weird, awful genre of mass shooting films. And uh, I think the first one arguably is Gus Van Sant's Elephant. Elephant. Yeah. Yeah. From about 20 years ago, which was mm. described as haunting. I remember everybody talking about this film being haunting. I think since then, every mass shooting film from this to we need to talk about Kevin is described as haunting when it's it's not quite right. This film from the opening frame just gives you a feeling of absolute impending nihilistic dread. It is just... Oh, sorry, this is the Martin Bryant. Nitrum is Martin Bryant. Yeah, okay. shit. Right. So, okay. And I want to talk about that, right? So the yeah. film's called Nitram. That is Martin backwards. Now, the reason why this film was written is because the writer, an Australian screenwriter who was living in America... Sean Grant was kind of despairing at the amounts of shootings that were not just happening on the news, but that were happening near his location while he was living in America. As an Australian living in America, mm. he was kind of blown away by that. When you're an Australian, the name Port Arthur is not oh. a location. It's, it's an event. It's it's an event. It's the worst mass shooting we've ever had. And really, to many Australians, it's kind of the only mass shooting we've had. After Port Arthur, there was immediate gun control legislation. They bought back something like 640,000 semi-automatic and automatic weapons from people. Mm. Not to say it's been a massive success, but it was a... I think, I think it probably was a massive success, wasn't it? Have you seen no, a gun? I... I saw one 22, 23 years ago. Look, it, 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 you know, all I'm saying is, you know, one piece of legislation doesn't end, you yeah. know, gun violence in no way, but it, 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 it's something that Australians, I think, are quite proud of. And if if you go, okay, well, what is a what is a morally right motivation for writing a film about Martin Bright? I guess that's one. Now, the second one, and it's the last time I'm going to use that name, mm. because he called the film Nitram for a few reasons. Number one, because he noticed that a lot of the school and mass shooting perpetrators, and they're generally male, had similar circumstances surrounding them. There was like a similar story that they were telling. So he wanted to make sure that, number one, this film was kind of not just about Port Arthur, but about all of them, really. But number two, he just didn't want to give any more infamy, and that means including in all the podcasts and reviews and things that write about this, this character in the film is only ever referred to as Nitram. They are never referred to Amazing. as the other name, which I think is really interesting yeah. and a very, it, it, it's a, it's, it's a very purposeful and I think right choice in making a film like this. Now, finally, mm. I've just been in Tasmania and like I said before, you know, it's, it's similarities to Stephen King's Maine in that it feels like a wild, darkly magical place mm. but also like quite a tragic place just being there you just feel the weight 
of like there's just a feeling of danger being there so it's interesting then that, that this is the this is the part of the Australia where this happened Port Arthur is in Tasmania um, it's just near it's it's in Hobart or near Hobart I don't 100% know the geography of Tasmania what's crazy about this though is the Tasmanian government wanted no part of this film yeah, they okay. did not want this film filmed they didn't give it any funding they Basically, like a lot of places wouldn't even screen it. So it was filmed mostly in Geelong, which is yeah, wow. Victoria, which is the state above Tasmania. Adele watching it was like, oh, I knew this wasn't Tasmania. I couldn't really tell the difference. But, you know, Australia's a big place. It's hard to understand it all. But, you know, a really interesting point. But Essie Davis, who's the one actor we didn't talk about, who's been in a number of things, mm. she was born and raised in Hobart. Yeah, wow. So... There are certainly people from Tasmania who believe in this film enough to not only, you know, want it to exist but be part of it. Mm. So that's that's all of the atmosphere around this film. It's so new. Like I said, it's not available outside of Australia yet except at film festivals. But it's so new that it doesn't have a Wikipedia synopsis yet. So as I was watching it, wow. and I think as a bit of a coping me- mechanism, I just wrote notes. Yep. So, Peach, I'm going to take you through my own synopsis of Nitram today. Are you prepared? Uh, yes. Shag, did you colour your hair? It looks fantastic. I'm sorry to get too <laughs> sidetracked. I was like, Shag's hair looks great. It's like a slightly richer chestnutty um, brown. Did that happen in Tasmania? Okay, okay. Two things. I've taken up surfing. I've finally become the most stereotypical Sydney cider I can be, and I yes. bloody love it. And, and surfing means, especially when you're on holiday in summer, being out in the surf every morning for a couple of hours, hence it having like a little bit of color because my hair has gone quite dark as I've aged. Mm. But also I'm so like, we mentioned it in a very early episode of Spooko. And I know there's a lot of, it's usually men or male identifying people, Mm. including yourself, who don't believe in the value of paying for a good hairdresser and creating a relationship with your hairdresser. I'm evolving though. We can come back to that. Yeah. Oh, good. I've, I've since, I've since had to, start up a new relationship with my hairdresser but you know the best part about it is Mm. when you have a relationship with a hairdresser they give you the people to go to so i'm now going to her hairdresser when she comes to sydney this is the person that she sees i had an amazing experience i went in he'd never seen my hair before i went in and was like hey look this is kind of what i'm after i'm not sure but at the same time you're an expert i want your opinion he's like i see what you want tell you what I'm going to do my version of it. We'll see if we like it at the end. Magic. It was, it took like two hours Magic. at the end of it. At first I was like, I love this. As it grew out, I was like, oh, I love it even more. So Peach, Magic. anytime you compliment my hair, you're complimenting the hairstylist in Surrey Hills. You want his name, DM me. I will let you know. Look, I self-care. I'm out. trying to, I'm trying to like 2022 year of self-care. I'll <laughs> get onto it. <laughs> Peach, I can't wait. I can't wait. Anyway, so Nitram. Yes. Um, and it is, it's really important we have these moments of levity. So please, any, <laughs> any more you feel the need to bring in, don't hesitate. All right. So Nitram, I've never actually seen this before in a motion picture, but begins with a disclaimer that says yes, this you have. film... Yes, you have. You've seen it at the beginning of the deadliest movie ever made. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yes, I have. But like, but a real disclaimer, like not a one that's like, you will die after like, like a real one. Right. So it begins with a disclaimer that says this film is based on real events. If you're feeling distressed, call any one of these numbers. Oh, sick. Okay. And it it includes the number to lifeline, a few others. I am going to say as well, I I think it's only right. Like we've given you the lead up trigger warning on this. 
this is a respectful story. We, we he never Trigger shoots. Warning is an unfortunate phrase. To, it is a to terribly use. unfortunate yeah. phrase. We never actually see the crimes, mm. but nevertheless, there are moments of unexpected violence in this film that have chilled me to my core. And I hope to do justice, but also not turn you off this podcast forever. So it begins with that disclaimer, and then we see. I'm not sure if it's real footage or mocked up footage, but it's from a 1979 news report from the Burns unit at Mm. one of Hobart's hospitals in which a child, Nitram, as he's referred to in this film, Mm. talks about being burnt using firecrackers and they say, what happened? And he's like, well, I just wanted to investigate firecrackers. I I guess they must have been legal in Tasmania Mm. at the time. Maybe they still are, I don't know. Mm. And he's like, I just wanted to see how they'd go. And then it went off and then I burnt myself. And the interviewer very tellingly is like, well, have you learned your lesson? And he's like, no, I'm going to do it again. And they're like, why? And he's like, because I want to. And that's how the film begins. So we then are in Tasmania in the early 90s, maybe late 80s, and Nitram is in his front yard setting off firecrackers in the evening while the neighbours are really annoyed and he just doesn't care. His mum is watching, clearly upset, and we, we get... I guess we get, a, we, we get a picture of their family life in which the mum has clearly been dealing with him for 19 years. I think he's around 18 or 19 at this stage, mm. and... She's just the mom and dad are both two different pictures of what it would be like dealing with a extremely special needs child. Mm. So she is basically just beaten down, is always the bad cop, being like, "You can't do that. You've got to come in." The dad is very. Lo- they both clearly love the child, but they just have they're just dealing with it. The dad is loves him, but is clearly utterly depressed in the deepest throes of depression, mm. and is the good cop in their relationship. But yeah, home life is difficult. He is a... He doesn't... Like, he's not in school. He doesn't have a job. He is going to see somebody. The family, as, as I imagine a lot of people at the time, as Adele put it, don't really believe in therapy. So they're, they're giving him medication, but he's not taking it all the time. And whether medication's just going to fix someone whether that's a thing or not is up for debate what's interesting about this film mm. is that it doesn't give any bad like obviously Nitram is the bad guy but it never gives you a reason for yeah. why the only thing it gives you is this inevitability that this was always going to happen which is just I think the thing about this film that just distresses me the most he clearly like goes from one hobby to the other wants to buy a surfboard to try and impress this cool guy in town called Jamie and must have, like, I assume Jamie went to school with him. Basically, every single person in his life, except for his dad, really bullies him or treats him like shit. Not that that's a reason. It's mm. just th- th- this this film is kind Context. of closely based on reality mm. and he's very isolated, basically. Mm. There's also this interesting technique that we learned from The Exorcist where there's a beehive at home. We often find the mum or Nitram at home either smoking or sitting down or doing things around the beehive and listening to that beehive buzz for long periods of time. Yep, 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 yep. So 
He's got nothing to do. Mm. He goes out to the local primary school with his fireworks and outside the gates sets them off and runs through them to impress the kids. Like the the principal comes up and it's like, what are you doing? You can't set off fireworks in front of kids. The dad finds him, pulls him into the car and is like, you can't do this. The dad's like, let's go for a drive. They go for a little drive. And keep in mind, this is like a long... There's just bits of flavor in this first, like, 10, 20 minutes. They go for a long drive. The dad takes him to this Airbnb that he wants to buy. And he's like, one day I'll buy this and you can help me run it. And Nitram's like, yeah, yeah, I'll help you out. And despite everything, Nitram and his dad seem to have a kind of good relationship. Now, his mom tells him that he needs to get a job. So he grabs his lawnmower and he starts going door to door and again apparently this happened in real life he starts going door to door asking people if they want their lawns mowed he's like i'm starting a lawnmower business do you want me to mow your lawn and the way he does it is quite threatening like he sort of knocks on the door really hard puts his foot in the door to stop people from closing it very very anti-socially scarily way and obviously lots of people say no until he goes to this big estate, very rundown mansion, and knocks on the door. And there's this really strange woman, and she kind of takes a liking to him. And she agrees to let him mow her lawn. And he can't, like, the, the mower fucks up. He's clearly brought a mower that doesn't really work. She comes out and goes, you know what, doesn't matter. I've got heaps of dogs. Why don't you show up tomorrow and you can walk my dogs? And they start this kind of friendship and again this happens in real life this older woman she's in her 50s that's essie davis played by essie davis and nitram is essie judy's daughter are they related no no not at all but she is the partner of justin kurtzel okay just as the tension and intensity is building up uh, shag i thought we would use the worst kind of supporter drive trick uh, that we learned from radio and i'm not sure if you remember (laughs) Do you remember when you'd hold the whole station hostage to get someone to um, to make a donation and you just go, oh, we're not going to play a song or do anything fun until someone joins. Oh, my God, that is the worst thing you can ever do on radio. So I thought we'd do it now and be like, we're not hearing any more from the plot. Shag, I've invested a lot of time in the Spooko TikTok account and we don't really do a lot of calls to action on this podcast. So fucking right now, like Shag and I are not going to say anything fun or interesting. We're just going to be here chilling, waiting for you to go and follow the fucking Spooko TikTok account. It's actually really good. Like, it's actually really good. <laughs> okay, like, it's not a just, it's not just an empty thing. It's really great. All right, so Nitram and Helen have struck up this relationship, this strange mm. relationship, and they start hanging, they start just sort of spending time together, and it's, mm. it, it's not and never is a romantic or sexual thing. Mm. It's, a, it's just a strange friendship between two people who find it hard to interact in the world and she takes him to a a car dealership where the car dealers are basically like oh look here comes helen good stuff and goes out and is like hey helen what car do you want to see today and so they go in a volvo what's the implication that she's just wandering down spending too much money on used cars yeah just just wait this is this is this is a new this is a dealership of new cars right okay 
they go for a test drive in a Volvo. And probably the first moment in this film where I was beyond just being like feeling the impending dread, but actually like shocked, is as they're driving, Nick Tram's in the front seat, the <sighs> dealer is in the back seat, and thinking it's funny, he just grabs the wheel and <clears throat> pushes it, forcing the car into another lane. And then does it again and again. And he, and he keeps doing it. And Helen's kind of okay with it, but a bit like, don't do this. The dealer is freaking out. He's like, stop the car. Stop the car. It's not funny. Stop the car. You've got to get out. They eventually stop the car, mm. go back to the dealership. She buys the car. Okay. So she buys the car. As she's signing the paperwork, Nitram's sitting in the car and the dealer comes up to him, who's sitting, who's, he's pretending to drive the car. The dealer comes up, pushes his head against the steering wheel, and he's basically like, if you fucking fuck my cars any more time, I don't fucking care. Like, it's just basically yeah. like, I will destroy you. And Nitram just sort of sits there and takes it. She doesn't see any of this. She comes up and she's like, hey, I bought you a present, this car. He's like, okay. She's like, is everything okay? He's like, yep. And she's like, okay. And then he's like, so are you rich or something? And he's, and she's like, yeah, I guess I am. Do you know Tats Lotto, which is a, like a, mm. a you know, lottery. It's a yeah. lottery in, mm. in, in Victoria. And Nitram's like, yep. And she's like, oh, well, I own it. And this oh, is fuck. a true story. Oh, fuck, really? He had a friendship with this woman, Helen, who was the heiress to the Tattersall Lotto fortune. Amazing. Okay. Who apparently in her time bought something like 50 new cars in Hobart and would regularly just abandon them all around the streets of Hobart. That's a really fun and bizarre real-life quirk. Okay, now I'm enjoying this. But before we go on, um, Shag, I think that anyone who's not following us on Instagram um, (laughs) should just go ahead, find Spooko on Instagram, uh, go and sling us a... Is it a subscribe on Instagram? Is it a follow? You should go do that. It's a follow. Yeah, go do that. We're not right. like we're not going we're not going ahead until you <laughs> until you've done that. So go do that. Jack and I are just gonna hang out here. So I'll see you in a sec. <laughs> this is actually like a really good way to diffuse the tension, I must say. Yeah, like I'm I'm pretty good. Like I'm actually okay. like I'm okay. I, I'm playing chess, not checkers here, Shag. I'm you know, I'm doing good stuff. <laughs> All right. So Nitram, after this incident, goes to live with Helen and when he tells his parents that he's going to live with Helen his parents are like who the fuck is Helen who are you talking about what are you doing Mm. and then they're like what's that outside and he's like it's my car and they're like but but how do you have a car you don't have a job and he's like yeah I mow Helen's lawn and they're like what the fuck but he just leaves right and the parents they don't want him to go but they Mm. at the same time they can't stop him and they're they're you it's very clear Mm. that they live in fear of him not not of him in terms of who he is but what he's capable of and what he's done in the past Mm. So he goes to live with Helen and there's a scene where he's unpacking his bag and we notice he unpacks an air rifle and puts it in the cupboard. And you've got to understand every every shot of a gun in this film is treated with like just respect is the wrong word, but solemnity. Yes, it's just like it just chills you to the core. Anyway, so he goes to live with Helen and Clearly some time passes because it's his birthday Mm. and they decide to have a birthday lunch, him and Helen and his parents 
at Port Arthur of all places. Oh, God. So Port Arthur is a, it was an old, like, con, Australia, you, you would know that Australia mm. has a convict history mm. post-English settlement mm. and English, you know, invasion, invasion of, yep. uh, of, of Australia. And I, I believe Port Arthur was, if it wasn't a convict settlement, it was like some sort of an army settlement. Anyway. Probably a port. Is my speculation. <laughs> it has it has its historical significance. Anyway, mm. but it's also like a tourist place. You go there. You can still go there, but now it's more of a solemn place. Well, it's become it's, so synonymous. Yeah. With with the events. Mm. So they have lunch there, and he arrives, and he's dressed in this ridiculous suit. He looks like, you know, in the early days of The Simpsons when Homer's early years were in the 70s, but as The Simpsons got older, he grew up in the 80s, then he grew up in the 90s, mm. and whatever, right? In the early episodes of The Simpsons, he grew up in the 70s, and whenever he goes to, like, a prom or whatever, he wears, like, a big, oversized, powder blue suit with the big yes. lapels. Yes, That's yes. what Nitram's wearing to go and meet his parents. And there's, it's not like he's being disrespectful. This is him thinking, oh, this is, this is a smart look. Mm. This is me putting on my best clothes. Mm. And so... They they visit they 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 have a chat and the mum's very hostile towards Helen because the mum's like what the fuck is going on and she has this moment where she's like what's going on like is he your boyfriend is he your son like how does this work and Helen's like do you have a problem with me and the mum's like no but let me tell you a story. And she tells that story from the trailer that you heard earlier in the episode, right? Mm. So there's this... Anyway, anyway, so later on, we find out that the Airbnb that the dad wanted to buy falls through because another couple came in later and had a better offer. And even though the dad had the paperwork in and was promising his son, the mm. Nitram that they were going to do it, mm. it didn't come through. It's crazy that even in Nitram, capitalism's a bad guy. Like, it's, <laughs> like it's a yeah. bad guy in every single horror film. It oh, will God. find its way in. Yeah. But the dad doesn't take this well. And this is pretty much the moment where he... He that's it. He's he's done. So anyway, so we're about this, halfway through the film. This now. is to be his path out of depression, is it? Like I'm going great. I'm going to start this business, and I'm going to be it's it's, be exciting. His, his path out of depression. His path to I guess saving Nitram. Yeah. Like okay. I think it, it's probably not just him, but it's probably for Nitram as well. Like yep. we'll do this together. I can look after him. I can protect him. Yep. You know, there's there's this feeling all the way through the film that the dad and the parents were the one thing keeping Nitram. At bay, word. if that kind of makes sense. Ooh, that's a foreshadowing word to use the past tense, Shag. Well, keep in mind, he's gone to live with Helen now, yeah, right? Shit, yeah, Helen, who cares for him but doesn't understand him, hasn't seen him growing up. So we're at the halfway point and Nitram is practising shooting with his air rifle outside. Mm. Helen sees it and goes, get that out of here. I don't want guns in the house. So Nitram comes in mm. and he's like, well, can you buy me a real gun? This one's boring. She's like, I won't, I won't ever do that. And I think that's interesting. This interest in guns, it's really important. Mm. And I think the, the point it makes is these aren't necessarily evil guys looking for guns to go, uh, to go kill lots of people. Mm. It starts as these really 
affected people with an interest in guns. He just thinks they're cool. Yep. Right? Like he thinks it's cool. This is this is part of his journey. Anyway, so he later apologizes and then says they should take a trip. She's like, okay, yep, we'll go in the morning. We'll go to the travel agent. We'll book a holiday to America. On the drive there, he does the same thing again where he grabs the wheel and goes, whoop, whoop, making the car veer into oncoming traffic. This time it veers into a truck, knocking the car off the road. It spins a few times. They're both knocked out. Again, this happened in real life, although we don't know what happens in the car, but there is speculation. He wakes up in hospital to find out that she has died. The parents ask him what they should tell the police, and Nitram says, just tell them I was asleep. The dad decides to. The mum just deals with it because at this point she's like, what can I do? Um, So just whatever app you're listening to this on, there'll be a little square with an arrow. And if you touch that, you'll be able to send an SMS link to the episode of this podcast. So choose one friend among your list of friends who you think might enjoy this very enjoyable episode and make sure you call to action all the calls to action. Shag, this this is really really getting to me, this one. So he has an extreme panic attack in the hospital once he realizes that she's dead. And it is an incredibly difficult shot to watch. When I talk about surprising violence, this to me, I count this as a scene of violence. I don't think you could watch this scene. I don't think a lot of people could watch this scene. We just are very much, the camera is tight on his face in a neck brace as he has a traumatic panic attack. Anyway. So later we see him go out. He tries to socialize. He meets Jamie again. Jamie reveals. Well, and he's like, that, Have you fucking seen my sick surfboard? <laughs> he's like, Oh, I'm getting a cool surfboard. Don't worry. Well, no, no. He buys Jamie a drink the whole time. He's just trying to impress Jamie. Even when Jamie treats him like shit, he's just trying to impress Jamie. So he buys Jamie some beers. They go out to smoke weed in Nitram's car. And we find out then. That I think Nitram's like, why do you call me that? And it's implied that maybe his name isn't Nitram, but everyone calls him that as kind of like an insult. And he doesn't like being called Nitram, but that's what every single person calls him. And we never hear the other name mentioned in this film. So they kind of leave it up in the air whether his name actually is Nitram or it's it's mm. like whether it's a filming technique or whether it is the insult. Again, uh uh, like I think it's t- I think it would be very difficult if you were in any way related to the carnage of Port Arthur watching this film humanize this man, and I think that's what makes this film so disturbing. Is at the end of the day, the people who commit horrific acts in the world are people, mm-hmm. and that's the most disturbing thing of all. Mm-hmm. I think that's what ties together the top 10 most disturbing films. Like, mm-hmm. I think you could probably say that's the thing. If you go back to those episodes and you go through what's the thing that ties them all together, it's the fact that normal people commit horrific deeds and that's evil. That's what evil is. It's the banality of normal people doing the most awful things. And this film makes you confront it head on. And like I said, it never goes, this is the reason it happened. And it never, it never shies away from being like, it is his fault. It is absolutely his fault. But it does say that this was inevitable. And the way 
the world around him was, there was kind of no other way that this was going to go. Uh, Anyway. uh, Yeah, okay. Anyway, so his mum comes to visit him at the house and she's like, why are you still staying here? And Nitram reveals that she left me everything. She's left me $500,000 in 1990, which is like $2 billion. And uh, plus houses, plus a whole bunch of stuff. So he essentially has... Did this actually happen? This Oh, this all happened. This is all true. He and from what I understand, he had the IQ of an eleven-year-old, but but was basically in this incredibly difficult adult situation, and at this point, more isolated than he'd ever been. Mm. So the mum comes over, is surprised, but is like, "I want you to come home. Your dad wants to see you." The dad is basically lying on the couch, comatose, in like in the deepest grips of depression. So this is probably the toughest scene in the film. So again. Like, if, if this episode's been really tough, and again, like, I'm sorry it has been. Mm. You can you, you can just skip, skip like, a couple of minutes mm. and you won't... Okay, anyway, so... Tell your friends about Spooko Horror Movie Podcast for people too scared to watch horror movies. Yeah, just, 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 keep, it, just keep it playing. Yeah. So, Nitram gets on top of his dad and starts hitting him violently in the face, being like, dad, get up. You've got to get up. Dad, come on, get up. And the dad's like, no. And he's just, he's like, you're hurting me. You're hurting me. And he's just hitting his father, just pummeling him to his father's face. is red raw. And the mom is just watching from the kitchen with this resigned expression. That's like, this, this, this is what, uh, this is my life. There's nothing I can do here. Or maybe there is, but I just, I've given up. Eventually, the dad gets up and is like, okay, I'll get up. Nitram then says to his mom, that's what you're supposed to do. When someone's like that, that's what you're supposed to do. Mom doesn't say anything. We see the dad in his room basically collapse. So Nitram drives to the Airbnb later that's been bought by this couple with a bag full of cash. And tries to get in and tries to buy this place. And the couple is like, we don't want to sell. And he's like, but you, we, you weren't supposed to buy it. We were supposed to buy it. Here's the money. Take it, take it. And they're like, no, we don't want to sell. Get out of here. We're going to call the police. So he leaves. And then he takes, you know, the steering wheel lock out of the car and, you know, bashes the sign of the Airbnb. He buys a surfboard, tries to surf, but he just can't. And he's laughed at by Jamie and all his friends as because I don't think there are that many surfing spots in Tasmania, probably, or in Hobart, probably. And they always surf at the same spot. He tries to surf where they're all wearing wetsuits. He's just wearing a pair of ill-fitting board shorts. He tries to surf. He can't. I know for a fact how pummeling it is in the water. And he just comes out of the surf and realizes that he's, yeah. He, this was a fool's error. I'm enjoying Surf Dad Shag at the moment. It's like <laughs> you're coming at it with the enthusiasm of the recently converted. You're like, oh, oh. I now know about surfing. <laughs> <laughs> it's my new thing. <laughs> Peach, thank you so much for the levity. So, all right. So, so trigger warning for this part. The dad is found dead and it's implied. It was by his own he, hand. Yes. By his own hand, yes. Um, obviously, if you're ever having... Issues with that, please um, call Lifeline. Mm. He doesn't know what to do. He shows up at the funeral wearing his blue suit and this, like, pimp hat. Like, I'm I'm sorry to use the term, but it's, like, that 70s peacocky hat. Like, he shows up to the funeral like that. 
The mom's like, what the fuck are you wearing? He's not trying to be funny. He thinks this is right. She's like, you can't embarrass me today. Go. And she makes him leave the dad's funeral. He's like, I just wanted to say goodbye. She's like, you've got to get out. He does donuts in the parking lot so everyone can hear and then he leaves. He decides to book a trip to America and goes on like a seven-day all-expenses-paid, you know, package deal trip to LA. He films himself the whole time and he just doesn't look like he's having a great time. He films himself going to, yeah. going to you know, like on going by the Hollywood sign, going the Walk of Fame, going to that famous beach where there's all the bodybuilders. And we see this through a video that he shot that he's mm. watching after the trip at home. Later on, we find Martin and Mum discuss his dad and he tries to explain himself and he's like, I can't... Nitram, yeah, sorry, continue. Nitram. Mm. Later, Nitram and his mum discuss their dad and he tries to explain himself to his mum for the first time because they clearly don't talk about this. And he's like, I just can't relate to people. I try, but I can't. Mm. And I keep taking video of myself and when I watch it back, I don't really know who I'm looking at. And I wish I could go in and tell that person to be normal, but I can't. Okay, so then we get to probably the most chilling scene of this film. And it's it's mm. a very it's a very well done scene. And I like I, I just feel like it's worth watching for this scene in which he goes to a gun store. And the gun store owner is basically showing him all these guns and this is pre anything like Port Arthur happening in Australia so mm. no one's going to think something like this is going to happen right this is not a country where mass shootings happen mm. and it have, and they haven't so he picks out the AR-15 tellingly and the the shop owner's like oh yeah this is a good one you know look at this it's really fun isn't it point it like this and, and they, they basically treat it like a toy. Mm. And he's like, tell you what, I can give you this with a bag, with four boxes of ammo, two extra blah, 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 for five grand. Nitramp shows him his bag of money and goes, is this enough? And the gun owner's like, yeah, actually. Are you interested in anything else? And he's like, yeah, I'd love to see some shotguns. So then he shows him these mm. shotguns and Nitram's like, oh, wow, this is a really cool one. And he's like, yeah, it's really sleek, isn't it? And they spend a good five minutes in this gun store watching him being sold guns for their coolness right being yeah. given all this ammunition and you know like scopes and things as like add-ons he eventually spends eight grand now the gun shop owner's like you've got a license and nitram's like no nah. and he's like oh okay but oh you weren't going to register these anyway weren't you and he's like what and he's like you weren't going to register these and he's like i don't know what that means he's like nah you weren't it's okay i'll sell these to you and he's like now if you wanted to buy a handgun i couldn't sell you one of these but i can sell you one of these so because of seeing that bag of money and because not expecting a mass shooting sells Nitram these two super high-powered, super deadly, super scary weapons. Mm. He then goes to see Jamie. And this is a really interesting scene because he shows Jamie the bag of guns mm. to be like, hey, do you, want, do you want one of these guns? They're pretty cool, aren't they? And Jamie's like, what? And just basically steps away and is freaked out and leaves him. And Nitram's a bit like, I did this to be cool. I thought you'd think these were cool. I, he was basically like, you can have one of my guns. And Jamie's like, what the fuck? We then see him practicing now in the backyard, but this, now he's practicing with real guns. Um, 
we then see him watching the Dunblane tragedy unfold on TV. Now, there's there's some indication that seeing school shootings on TV lead to copycats, and mm. there, there's 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 a belief that potentially the coverage of Dunblane at the time, because it was kind of new, so it was very sensationalist, affected Nitram's uh, mental mm. state. Anyway, so later we see him going shopping for clothes. He buys what he thinks is a very normal man outfit. He then buys more guns, this time from a local dad who's just selling them on, like, Gumtree or whatever. Mm. And we notice he's building an arsenal at home. He's laid out all the guns on a table as, like, check out all my cool guns. And at this point, it just mm. it just feels completely inevitable. But weirdly enough, his mum comes over to see him and he hides all the guns in like drawers and cupboards and all these things. We see him cleaning the house and find all these weird places to put the guns. And they have dinner and it feels a bit like a last supper. And the mum's kind of basically like, you should, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? And he's like, I don't know. And she's like, you should go out, you should go dancing. You used to love dancing as a kid. And... Later on that night, we see her mm. tucking him into bed. It's a, it's a strange moment, but it's quite a tender moment. And it's like, there's no way yes. you can't... There's a temptation to try and put the blame on a parent or society or whatever, but the parents love him. But it's also very difficult looking after a child like this. Anyway, so th- that morning, an alarm rings. He gets dressed in those clothes he bought. We watch him put large black heavy bags in the trunk. He drives with all the dogs into the middle of suburbia, abandons them all on a street. He then drives to the Airbnb. We watch him go inside. We hear gunshots. He comes back out, drives away. He drives to Port Arthur. We see an aerial shot to show that it's like a busy Saturday. There's people everywhere. He drives in. We see him buy a meal. We see him set a camera on the table, pull a gun out of his bag, and then it cuts. The final scene of Nitram is a news report giving early indications of that there's been a mass shooting, that there's people dying. The camera is at the TV. It slowly moves outside to under the beehive where the mum is sitting there listening to the news report, smoking, clearly not surprised. Mm. And almost not feeling anything at this point. The film ends with some stats that feel a little bit tacked on because I think the film is so much more about so much more than gun control. But talking about the fact that 12 days after this event, Australia passed a massive gun control legislation. 640,000 weapons were brought back. It was approved by all states, but up until now, no single state has entirely abided by it. And now there are more guns in Australia than there were at the time mm. of Port Arthur. That's the end of Nitram. I know it was a massive bummer, but I just, I, I, I was so affected by it. it when, when you talked about in the disturbing film episodes about why would you want to watch something like this? I don't, I don't really know. It's hard to say what compelled me to it. I wanted to know the story. I wanted to know more about this point in history. I guess I probably wanted to understand it a bit more. And I don't think I do necessarily. Like, I know the story better. And most of the things I mentioned in this film actually happened. But I don't know if I, like, 
really get it more. And I also don't know, and it's a it's a, it's an important question whether it's okay for this film to exist when this isn't a tragedy from a hundred years ago. This is a tragedy from like twenty five years ago, twenty seven years ago. That the survivors of which are still around, the families of the survivors of which are still around are probably feeling it. And so I absolutely understand why Tasmania would want no part of this film. Peach, Nitram, um, tell I me. I suppose art is designed to elicit a response um, and good art will f- force you to reflect on its creation, including sometimes the circumstances of its creation. And so... I think as as an artwork it's very legitimate to to tell any story there is more within reason um and especially to do it in a way that even the very title is itself an attempt to telegraph the sensitivity to the risk that telling a story like this can bring with it and the risk of glorification and the risk of upsetting those around it. It is an interesting question, is it? Like, should should the relatives of victims have been consulted before creating the film and if they did not want it to be created, should um, Kurtzel have said, all right, well, then I won't do it then? And I'll only create things that make the victims of... So the families of victims happy about it. And I sort of think there's... There's two trains of thought that I can't really easily satisfy there. But but I think I'm more inclined toward freedom of expression than toward pleasing as many people as possible at any one time. So I think I'm pleased that creators are able to create without fear of a moral panic or, or, or for so long as they're managing the, the more severe risks that can come from creating something like this. But I can understand people being upset about something like this existing. I, I, I think it's very interesting. I'm not attracted to it. I don't want to watch it. But I can understand why a creator would feel compelled to create it and an audience would feel intrigued to watch it. So, Peach, where should people follow us? Find us on TikTok. <laughs> Find us on fucking Instagram. I don't give a shit. Like, who cares? Un- unfollow us on everything. Who cares? Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe, and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?